Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we want our praise and all of ourselves to be for you alone. And Father, thank you for the reality of what Christ did in uh, going to the cross today as we think about that week in his life and as he prepared himself to be the sacrificial lamb for the sin of the world. Would you speak to our hearts through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And thank you. You may be seated. It's hard to believe that it was 50 years ago already, but it was in 1969. Some of you might remember uh, a, a hurricane storm in the Gulf Coast down south called Camille. In 1969 in past Christian Mississippi, a group of people were there preparing to have a hurricane party in the face of the storm that was named Camille. Some would wonder if they were ignorant of the dangers or were they just simply overconfident and cocky? Did they let their egos and pride influence their decisions? We'll never really know. What we do know is that the wind was howling outside of a high-end Richelieu apartments when police chief Jerry Peralta pulled up sometime after dark. You see, facing the beach less than 250 feet from the surf, these apartments were directly in the line of danger. A man with a drink in his hand came out on the balcony of the second floor balcony and he waved. Peralta yelled up, you all need to clear out of here as quickly as you can. The storm's getting worse. But as others joined the man on the balcony, they just laughed at the chief's order to leave. This is my land, one of them yelled. If you want me off, you'll have to arrest me. Well, Peralta did not arrest anyone, but he also wasn't able to convince them to leave either. He did write down the names of the next of kin of the 20 or so people who were gathered there at the party through the storm. And as he took their names, they laughed and laughed. They had been warned, but they had no intention of leaving. It was that night at 10.15 p.m. when the front wall of the storm came ashore. Meteorologists clocked Camille's wind speed at over 200 miles per hour. Raindrops hit with the force of bullets and the waves off the Gulf Coast crested between 22 and 28 feet high. News reports later showed that the worst damage came at the little settlement of motels, go-go bars, and gambling houses known as Past Christian Mississippi, where some 20 people were killed at a hurricane party in the Richelieu Apartments. Nothing was left of that three-story structure but the foundation. The only survivor was a five-year-old boy found clinging to a mattress the following day. There's a storm coming. They've been warned, and all they want to do is party. It's an interesting scenario, and as I invite you to turn in our Bibles today to the triumphal entry story, we call it, past, uh, we call it Palm Sunday today. I invite you to turn to Luke's gospel in chapter 19. It was my intention to continue and keep plowing through Hebrews. I decided it would be good for us to have uh, a recognition of Palm Sunday and prepare our hearts even for Friday night and Sunday morning coming. What we find in, Psalm 9, in, in Luke chapter 19, excuse me, as we have the stage set for this triumphal entry is a whole lot of people that are having a great time and they don't realize that they're Time is running short. 
I want to read the text in its entirety this morning. We're going to use Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. This is the familiar passage of Palm Sunday that many of you are aware. Uh, I want to read through verse 44 here, and then I want to skip over to chapter 20 and read a parable that our Lord taught. Then two days later, it is most likely that our Lord had uh, quietly celebrated uh, the Sabbath on Saturday. This is uh, Sunday morning now, and as we saw in our reading before, he had set himself resolute to go to Jerusalem. It was time for him to head to Jerusalem. God's plan of the ages was going to unfold that weekend, and it is now Sunday morning. And this Sunday morning, as he heads towards Jerusalem, he is absolutely in control. I want you to see that later in the message. And it is God's time now. For three years, he's been ministering publicly. He's been heading to this point in time. Uh, The crowds uh, are excited. They think they finally have a king who will uh, overthrow Rome and restore Israel to its former glory days of David and Solomon. It's the longing of their hearts. We have here a king with a different agenda. We have a king that we're going to see in our story who weeps. And this is Sunday morning as he enters then heading towards Jerusalem. Uh, When we skip to the parable in 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 9, it is probably when you take the harmony of the gospels and put it together, it is likely Tuesday morning then when he was teaching. He did a lot of teaching in this final week of ministry. Let's read our text, Luke chapter, Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he, this is Jesus, drew near Bethphage and Bethany, two small communities right outside of Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Excuse me. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Verse 41. And when he drew near and he saw the city, that would be Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's a warning passage. It's harsh. He goes on to further 
give warning through a parable on Tuesday morning. Let's pick it up at verse 9 of chapter 20. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and he let, out, and he let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed, and he, he sent yet a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. And, and then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? He says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. What an interesting section of scripture. What an interesting day of ministry and days of ministry uh, in our Lord's life as he's heading to Calvary. Uh, One of the things that I always think is interesting is what in the world is Palm Sunday all about anyway? What's the deal here? We, We rejoice in it. We give our boys and girls palm leaves that they bring home in the car and they smack each other with them and they get in trouble and um, they have little coloring sheets and we know it's the week before Easter, but what's the significance? What really is happening here? What is it that makes this parade, this the, the crowd is raucous. They are partying. Our Lord, in this strangest of ways and modes, come in, coming in on, the, on an unbroken colt of a donkey, comes into the community it's really a strange scene. After three years, all of a sudden, it's like a lever is switched and, and all of a sudden everything's in high gear and, and what's happening. And I would like us to just look through these passages and understand at a little deeper level the significance of Palm Sunday. One of the first things that I think is um, a reality about this day is that it is a day when Christ once again demonstrates his authority he demonstrates his authority. It is kind of an interesting thing that uh, though for three years he has been healing the lame and the blind and the sick and restoring sight to blind, restoring words to the mute, even raising the dead, we recognize that on this day as he comes to Jerusalem, he's passing through these smaller communities, Bethany and Bethphage. We're not sure where that is exactly. Right outside the outskirts at the base of the Mount of Olives heading into Jerusalem. He's on his way. Now, he is absolutely in charge, and he's beginning to set the stage for the unfolding of God's plan. Keep that in mind. The crowds totally misunderstand the storm that is coming. They totally misunderstand the warnings that he's going to give them. And they think this is just such a wonderful time. And they think they finally have a king who's going to restore them to their old glory, to ancient glory. It's going to overthrow Rome and somehow put aside. And if anybody can do it, surely this one who can raise the dead, make the, la- the lame to walk, the blind to see, surely he can do it. And here, even in this setting, he demonstrates his authority. And we get a glimpse, first of all, of his omniscience. 
I think it's really interesting as we begin the story that it says that as he draws through these small communities, and you can picture the crowd beginning to grow, it does define the crowd in Luke's passage as disciples when you harmonize with Matthew and Mark and their uh, record of this event you recognize that it's more than just disciples, but the whole community comes running. You can see that this is a growing parade. And as he comes, there's just an excitement and an, and an enthusiasm. And, and they're just a party atmosphere of joy. What I think is interesting, in, as he's coming then, and he's been walking, as he comes there into these small communities, he says to two of his disciples... Go into the village in front of you. So they haven't gotten there yet, and they're walking on their feet in. He said, go into the community, and as you enter the community, there's going to be a colt that's tied up in the neighborhood over there. When you check the other gospel accounts, we know that there's the mayor is there as well. And he says an interesting thing, on which no one has ever yet sat said, I want you to untie that and I want you to bring it to me. Now, it's not beyond the realm of feasibility that our Lord happened to have a friend that he knew had a mare and a colt there and that somehow he knew he was coming to town and his friends knew and the the guy had the animals ready for him. But I think it is most likely that this is an absolutely unknown event this day to the owner of the animals. And we see that in verse 33, it says, and as they were untying the colt, the owners do exactly what the Lord warned them they would do. They hollered out and said, hey, why are you untying my colt? Yo, yo, hey, just say this, the Lord has need of them. It's a pretty neat moment. I I didn't really include it in the message, but it's just coming to me even as I preach. You see, you get get the residual of of two messages already. And so I, I keep gathering things here. But think about the fact that our Lord had disciples scattered throughout these communities, didn't he? He had believers. Evidently, the owners of these animals were men who knew who Jesus was and had some sense of understanding that he was a wonderful teacher and a healer of the sick. And they had some kind of an awareness as even the crowd did because we know that like in chapter 18, for example, he had just healed uh, the blind beggar Bartimaeus who was sitting along the road. He had healed him of his blindness. We know from John's account, though Luke doesn't include it in John 11, in that account, what would we have where Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead? That was only a few weeks before this. I mean, there's just some great things that have been happening. And it says in John 11, following the resurrection of Lazarus and passages following, that there was a renewed interest in following Jesus around because they wanted to see the show. They wanted to see if there would be any more people that would be raised from the dead and people without appendages who would have appendages at a word. What a remarkable reality it was. And for all three years, he had been demonstrating his authority. He had been demonstrating his deity. That was the purpose of his miracles and the purpose of his mighty works. But I think it's not insignificant that even as he walks into town, he says to these two men, two two of his disciples go, and there in town is this colt and the and the mayor and the men come out on the porch and they holler at the disciples, hey, why are you untying my animals? And they say, the Lord has need of them. And this is where I was going before. He has disciples. God has his people everywhere. And they have resources. 
And don't you think that's worthy of modeling that when we hear in our ear, the Lord has need of it, it's all his. That's all they had to hear. What are you doing with my animals? The Lord has need of them. Good, take them, go. And our Lord, I believe it was in his omniscience that he knew this. Letter A under number one is he demonstrates his authority. You have a glimpse of his omniscience. What is omniscience? Omniscience is a, is a character of God that was displayed even through the, the embodiment in, human, in humanity of Christ. He had, he had calmed the storm. He, had, he knew where people, what people were thinking. He, omni means everywhere, and, and science is the next word. That's how it's spelled, omniscience, omniscience, we pronounce it. It means to be all or everywhere knowing. It is an all-knowingness. Science means knowledge, omni-knowledge, all-knowing. Our Lord had no, he did not have to rearrange a setup where he borrowed an animal. He knew where it would be. And it's interesting as well that he demonstrates his omnipotence on this day. I don't think it's a small thing to be quickly overlooked that he rides into a parade, a raucous, crying out crowd with flapping coats and flapping palm branches, a colt upon which no one has ever yet ridden. If you've ever tried to break animals into routines, you know that that usually does not go well. I have zero experience with donkeys and horses, but I have a little bit of experience with dairy cows. And I can remember one evening breaking in after all the cows were done. We kept a a young first calf heifer uh, in the holding pen, and we're bringing her into the milking parlor for the very first time. So we just tried to keep her calm and bring her in, and I mean, she went crazy. Instead of turning left into the parlor to be milked, she turned right into the, past the refrigerator and around the cooler and through the storm door and off the front porch and across the road and across the field. And I thought to myself, if I had my deer rifle here right now, I'd, <laughs> and I'd gladly spend the rest of the summer working for the boss to pay her off. An unbroken animal is, you know, their eyes roll back in their head and they just carry on. And here it is. In his omnipotence, omni, all potent, potent power. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent. Our Lord, even on this day, is displaying in a continuing manner his authority over nature. And he's going to ride into this raucous parade on an unbroken animal. (laughs) You see, part of it is this. We're going to see in a minute that one of the most significant things about this day and this gathering and the crowds is that, that this riding into town on the unbroken colt is prophesied in the Old Testament. So listen to me. It had to happen. It had to happen because the Bible said so. And so you, you need to be impressed with this Jesus today. Because you can't just study the Old Testament prophecies and say, well, I'm going to fake it. You know, if, if it's supposed to ride into town on an unbroken colt, the foal of a donkey there, I'm going to do that because it says it and I'm going to... No, but it's an unbroken colt. And you just can't do that. You can't make the lame to walk. You can't make the blind to see. You can't raise the dead. And you can't ride an unbroken colt. 
And so you have here just these, the, the, uh, the demonstration of his authority. And then secondly, in an ongoing way, he authenticates his identity through this. Who is this that can ride an unbroken colt? Who is this that can know that over on the side of the neighborhood is a mare and a colt, and it's exactly where he said it was going to be, and the guy's going to say exactly what he said he's going to say, and you tell him this, and then he'll give it to you, and he knows everything. He's there. He just has it. Part of the significance of this day is just identifying Jesus as Messiah. And how does that happen? Well, you need to understand that in the Old Testament, there are nearly 300 prophecies about the coming of Messiah. All right? And, and his death and his burial and his resurrection. About a hundred of those are just as clear as can be. I'm going to show you one that's not as clear, but it is absolutely a prophecy about Jesus and his ministry and bringing salvation. But about a hundred of those prophecies are just crystal clear that they are fulfilled in Christ. What I want you to see is that that is all about his first coming. Okay? When he came to be born of Mary, to minister to serve, to seek and to save the lost, to go to Calvary, to die, to shed his blood, to be buried, to rise again the third day, to ascend into heaven. All of that is about his first coming. What I want you to see is that they were literally fulfilled. And and, And we can do this because part of what's happening here is right before our eyes, scripture is literally being fulfilled at this parade. So let's turn to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. It's not hard to find. Uh, you know the Gospels pretty well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you find those empty page, the empty page there at the New Testament mark, then you have Malachi going to your left. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And then keep going to your left. The next one's Zechariah. So it's not that hard to find. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9. And look what it says here. He's telling Zion to rejoice, and they were celebrating that day. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zechariah 9, 9. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So they had some notice that there was a king coming. They understood it to be the wrong kind of king. Not from their sin, saving them from their sin. They wanted saving from a political system that was oppressive, namely Rome. And he is going to be humble, mounted on a donkey. The very fact that he's on the donkey is a picture of his humility. We're going to note that in a minute. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, so Zechariah, about 500 years before our Lord enters Jerusalem, says, your king is going to come to you. He's going to be mounted on the foal of a donkey, a colt, basically a foal, basically an unbroken animal. So you can sit around and scratch your head and you can say, now what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that he's going to enter Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's what it means. And that's exactly what happens in Luke chapter 19 in his account. What I want you to understand is that the authority of Scripture is is such that if the scripture says it, it has to happen. And our Lord then fulfills this literally and secondly, very precisely. He didn't just come riding into town on a horse. 
He came riding into town on the foal of a donkey. And so these first coming prophecies are very literal. When you read the Old Testament and you read about the first coming of Christ, there are many, many, many dozens of these prophecies just like this. In fact, it reminded me of a section in a book that I have. And and instead of copying it into your notes, I brought the book. It is a book that some of you know the author of the author. His name is Josh McDowell. I used to use his material a good bit when I was a youth pastor. Josh McDowell was very popular in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and into 2000s. I believe Josh is still alive, but he's getting to be a pretty old fella. And he's written a lot. I think his son is helping take over his ministry. Uh, Josh is is an apologist. You know what an apologist is? Uh, not somebody who walks around saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's somebody who is a defender of the faith. He makes an apology. It's kind of the, the, the science of defense. And he's an apologist. He has a most interesting story, and he wrote it in a book called Evidence That Demands a, Ver- a Verdict. It's still in print. It's a good book to read. It's real simple and organized in outline form. Uh, Josh McDowell was in university and he was sitting around a cafeteria and he was a mocker and a scoffer of Jesus Christ. He didn't believe the Bible was true. He didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. He didn't believe any of that stuff. But he, but there were some girls that he hung around who were Christians and he thought they were cute. So he hung around them a lot. And, and they're sitting around the cafeteria at his university and they get to talking about Christ and he's kind of bah humbugging the whole thing. And one of them says to him, Josh, if you're so all-knowing and you know so much that Jesus wasn't real, particularly the resurrection wasn't real, he said, I don't believe it. It couldn't happen. He, they said to him, then why don't you prove that it never happened? So it kind of... Um, it got him going, and that's what he did. He spent the next several years doing significant research about whether or not it could be real that the resurrection of Christ could be a documentable real reality, and did the evidence point to the Scripture account of the resurrection being true. And by the time he was halfway through his research, he had bowed his head and humbled his heart, and he has yielded his life over to King Jesus, who rose from the dead, and he believed it with all his heart. And he took his research, and he put it in evidence that demands a verdict, and he became famous and rich. It is a very helpful book. And then he wrote another book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict 2. And I have the book Evidence, The New Evidence, which is another money-making gig. And it's just Evidence 1 and Evidence 2 combined into one. And so I thought I would bring my book, and it's all torn up because it's been through Noah's flood. Um, And really, we had Noah's flood at our house. I, I have a desk deep down in the dark crevices of my unfinished dirty basement is where I study for my sermons where no one can get to me and there I work in the dark like the apostle Paul in a dungeon (laughs) and my desk was right below the powder room there for many years and one afternoon my grandson uh, somehow was able to make the toilet overflow and all of that ran down on my desk and it ruined my book I will wash my hands after church before I (laughs) shake yours maybe Um, and And so we call that Noah's flood, but all that to say that in this section of the book that I was reminded of, Josh McDowell has this really useful passage where he just, he just lists page after page after page the Old Testament prophecies, and then he documents the New Testament fulfillment in the Gospels. And so, and it just goes on and on and on, and I want you to see how literal and how precise these 
These really are. I mean, I mean, for example, Isaiah 40 verse 3 says that there's going to come a voice from the wilderness crying out that the Messiah is coming. And when you get to the New Testament, what do you have? You have John the Baptist in sackcloth and, and long hair eating grasshoppers coming out of the wilderness crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. It's exactly the way that Isaiah prophesied is what John did. And it was written down by eyewitnesses exactly what he did. And it said his ministry would begin in Galilee, there by the sea. And in Isaiah 9, it talks about that. And in our Gospels, it's, authentic, it, it's listed exactly how it unfolded. It says that his ministry would be characterized by miracles. Isaiah 35 says that then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then the lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the dumb will sing for joy. And what did Jesus do? In the Gospels, in Matthew 9, for example, Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. You see, you can't fake that. He would teach in parables. Psalm 78 says that. He did it all the time. He would enter and clear out the temple. Malachi 3 says that. These are all hundreds of years by different authors saying exactly the dynamics of his ministry and how he would be characterized. And then it says on Josh's list of prophecies fulfilled, number 27, there it is. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is he is just and having salvation and he's humble and he's lowly and he's riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. And we've already read in our text in Luke today that that's exactly the way he rode into Jerusalem. He would be a stone of stumbling. We're going to see that in our passage. Yeah, we thumb through. We get to the part about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And, and these prophetic statements are just unbelievable. When you realize that multiple authors hundreds of years before wrote things then that were documented by eyewitnesses repeatedly recorded for us as historical events. It would be prophesied that he would rise from the dead, that there would be a resurrection. That's exactly what happened, that he would ascend back up into heaven. That's exactly what he did in front of eyewitnesses. He would be seated at the right hand of God. This is number 33 on the list. He would be betrayed by a friend who he was eating bread with. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's exactly what Judas did, didn't he? He had his trust. He's partaking of the bread with him, sopping together. Even more precise, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Back in Zechariah 11, it says there that he would be sold on an agreement payment of 30 pieces of silver. Not 29, not 31, 30. And that's exactly what happened. Furthermore, Zechariah goes on to prophesy then that those 30 pieces of silver, that the door of the temple would be open and they would be cast in, into the house of the Lord for the potter. And that's what Judas did, didn't he? He threw him in on the floor and he said, buy the potter's field. They bought the potter's field. He didn't say that, but they bought the potter's field because it was blood money. They made it a cemetery. And Zechariah 11 said that's exactly what would happen. And it goes on and on and on. And not only is it literal, these prophetic statements about the first coming of our Lord. And as he came into Jerusalem, a very literal thing that he would come riding on a colt. It was exactly and precisely exactly the way the Bible said it would happen. 
You know some of the prophecies about his birth. The most familiar ones are about his birth. That he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah said. That he would be born in Bethlehem. And what happened? He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And so the part of this ramifications of Palm Sunday is the authentication of the, identif- of the identity of Messiah, that it was prophesied that he would ride into town in the middle of a parade where they were shouting and hollering, crying out with a loud voice, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It was prophesied 400, 500 years before, and that's exactly what happened. And it had to happen because it said it was going to happen. So it couldn't not happen. And there it is. So we, Christ demonstrates his authority with his omniscience, his omnipotence. He authenticates his identity. We've already emphasized in the reading that thirdly, Christ presents himself in humility. It was notable and we needed to not just gloss, gloss over that. That Zacharias says that part of the reason he came in on a colt of a donkey is a demonstration of his humility. It reminded me of Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 where it talks about he is the firstborn of all creation and that he spoke all things into existence and that all things were created by him and for him. Everything that was created is our Lord's. He owns all of creation. He's the king. He's the owner of creation. And yet in his humility and his humanity, he just comes in riding on a donkey. One Bible commentary pointed out that his name is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah said he would be called Prince of Peace. And he was a peaceful man. He didn't come in riding a stallion with a sword like a conquering general he came in with a peacetime animal not a war animal a peacetime animal is a donkey he plows gardens and he hauls he hauls carts to market and the everyday life in a peaceful community these animals would be working all around you and our lord's on his colt coming in fulfilling scripture in all of his humility what a remarkable lord jesus he is I want you to see then as he cried out. Another thing, I don't really have this in the notes, but as they're crying out and they're fulfilling scripture, the crowd is, and they don't even know it, and they've gathered in, and and there's this raucous party going on. Some of the Pharisees then, verse 39, said to him in the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell the crowd to be quiet. You see, they knew the Old Testament scripture. They knew that the voice of the crowd was that of a voice that was acknowledging Messiah. They thought it was blasphemous. They thought it was wrong. They didn't want that to happen. They told him, you better knock this off. You're not allowed to do this. Our Lord turns to them and says, well, if they don't cry out, the stones themselves will. And it made him so mad. It doesn't show right here, but I believe that one of the most significant things about Palm Sunday is that our Lord knew that this crowd would be gathering, he knew that they would do what they were going to do. And he knew that the elders and the chief priests and the Pharisees would observe it. And so now these, this group of hyenas who've been trying to kill him for three years and he had not allowed it. Remember one time he melted through the crowd. I don't know if he, I don't know if that means they pressed in so close that they couldn't get their hands on him or they just miraculously, they couldn't grab a hold of him. And he went right through the crowd when they were going to push him off a cliff. And they wanted to kill him all along. But listen, it was only going to happen on God's timetable when the Lord Jesus said, now's the time. He had already told his disciples three times, we're going down to Jerusalem there. I will give myself up. 
to be crucified. And it was now on God's plan of the ages, God's timetable, it was time to happen. And so this, this fomenting of the crowd and this, this gathering that so angered the Pharisees would only put into motion at high speed their desire to kill him. So as he goes into Jerusalem, they are now really ready to lay murderous hands upon him. Here the crowd is, and it says then in verse 41, and he drew near and he saw the city and he wept over it. One of the modern paraphrases says, and he burst into tears. I didn't check, I've not been there before, and at first I was saying he was coming in looking down on Jerusalem, but I really don't know the geography because he used to go up to Jerusalem, I think, uh, uh, with the rise of the land. It was, he, he could see it. Wherever he was from, he could see it. And where he was coming out of these communities, as he entered Jerusalem, he had some kind of panoramic view of at least part of the city. And as he sees the city, it says that our Lord bursts into tears. He's the king who cries. He's a weeping king. Why? Because though they're hollering and screaming and partying, he knows there's a storm coming. He knows that they're missing the whole point and that they have ignored the voice that would save their lives. They have mocked the voice that would save their lives. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That's a consequential element. You only hear the gospel so many times and then God will allow your heart to be hardened. I think that's still true today. I'm not saying that anybody who wants to can't be saved. You can be saved anytime you want to be saved. I'm saying that you reject Christ enough, you'll quit wanting to be saved. And God will harden your heart. He'll allow it to happen. You'll want to harden your heart and he'll let it happen. For the days will come upon you, verse 43, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's he saying? Well, it's a, prof- it's a prophetic statement about 70 AD when Jerusalem is raised and, and, and everything is torn down by the, by the Romans. Listen, Josephus documented in his book, History of the Jewish War. He was a Jewish historian. He said it like this. What Jesus just described, Josephus the historian says this. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike were massacred. He says, your children are going to be in you. They're going to be right there in the city under your kitchen table, and they're going to get massacred. And, and maybe even reflective of pregnant women being killed with their babies in them. The emperor, Josephus goes on to say, the emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed, R-A-Z-E-D, to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west. All the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was completely razed to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. No stone left upon another, and that's exactly what happened. But here's what I want you not to miss. Why did it happen? Jesus says, and it's why he's weeping. You've you've had every opportunity. The son of man has been in your presence. He's been making the lame to walk, the blind to see, the dead to walk again. 
riding on a colt that's never been ridden on through the middle of a parade. Come on, people, don't you get anything? He said, it's now going to be hidden from your eyes, and the reason is, is because you did not know the time of your visitation. Christ was right here. The Messiah was in your presence, and you missed the whole point. And you know, you know what I think a lot of us would think? Pastor Van, don't you worry. Because if I were there, I would have understood this. It was so obvious. I mean, Zechariah 9.9, riding on a colt, poop, poop. Mabel, come on to the parade. Jesus is coming to town. I got it figured out. You know, he was the living word, and we have another living word in our hands, and people are, are, are just as ignorant of it and just as ignoring of it. And, and we've been visited with another word, haven't we? And it's clear as can be. And if you reject this word, you would have rejected the living word if you were there. Just mark that down. If you're not a follower of Christ today and you don't care about the Bible and you kind of say, bah humbug to this stuff, just make note. If you reject the Christ in the Bible today, you would have rejected the Christ in human form. I feel confident of that. And notice that it is a warning. It is a limited time. If you had only known that this was the day to make peace, it was, a, it was also t- to the very day, a day that was prophesied that he would come back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. That's another whole story of figuring out the very precise day that he enters Jerusalem was the fulfillment of God's promise to them that you would, he would come. And then, and then they rejected him. And so our Lord spends the next couple days illustrating this then and teaching in no uncertain terms. So not only does he weep over his community and he he bursts into tears, his tears then demonstrate how deeply disturbed he is about the coming storm and in his words, he now begins to give more detailed specifics about the judgment to come. And so our final point, number five, is that Christ illustrates missed opportunity because that's what he's warning them of. As soon as he comes through the parade and he said, because you didn't know the time today, you didn't recognize who I really was, you're going to be judged and your children and the whole place is going to be gone. And in 70 AD, it was just a few years later. So we go over to chapter 20 and verse 9, where we see his teaching about the parable of the tenants and it's, and it's illustrative of his teaching then, of his final week of his ministry, continuing to warn, continuing to demonstrate that Israel had had the Messiah in their presence and because they had rejected him, they would be judged. We read the story already. It begins with verse 9 as Christ illustrates now missed opportunity through a parable. A parable is a a make-believe story. Our Lord was the master of storytelling, and he used storytelling for teaching. And in this, in, it's a story, though, that you're supposed to get a spiritual point out of it. And this isn't hard to understand. A man plants a vineyard. He lets his tenants there, and he's in another country. So he's a foreign investor, and he comes from a foreign country. He buys up property. He plants a vineyard, and he's a foreign investor, and he has somebody there setting up the farm. The vineyard produces. It's time to reap. It's time to have payback. So he sends a servant. You remember the story. 
When it was time for the servant, he sent a servant, verse 10, to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And we're supposed to go, what? We're supposed to be shocked. Jesus is telling a story, and all of a sudden, things are interrupted. It's not right. He owns the property. It's his vineyard. He sent his servant to collect on his own goods. And they beat him up and sent him out of the vineyard. So the story continues. So he goes home, and the master does what? What? He sends another guy. I wouldn't send another guy. He sends another servant, and they beat him up. And it says, not only do they beat him up, but they uh, treat him shamefully, whatever that means. They shaved half his beard off, cut his britches off or something, beat him up and sent him out and shamed him, sent him back to the master. Uh, Now, we're supposed to be starting to get a little upset about this. I said, wait a minute, this isn't right. You're supposed to say to yourself, what's wrong with those people? They were supposed to do this. He owned the vineyard. He had rights to it. And then he sends a third servant, and now we're supposed to say, wait a minute, this guy is way too patient. He's giving message after message after message, and he sends the third guy. And the third guy goes, and, and he gets beat up and kicked out of the vineyard. And so now we're supposed to say, well, what's the owner going to do? What's the owner going to do? What's the owner going to do? And we're listening to the story, and Jesus continues the story. He hasn't beat up one. He hasn't beat up two. They haven't beat up three. They beat up three guys. So now we're supposed to say, well, how does this story end? And And the master says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. And when my son comes to them, surely they will treat him with the honor and the respect because he's identified with me. And he's my son. And not only that, he's my beloved son. In fact, he might even say it like this. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Perhaps they will respect him. Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. You see, they got a thing mixed up a little bit. In the Eastern culture, on the laws of the land were such that if an, if an owner died and he had no heirs, then it was kind of first come, first serve, run down to the courthouse and file for his property, and you could then get it. If there was no one to get it, it the first person to holler for it got it. And often the people who were there working the land would, would be able to get the land because the owner of the property died and he had no one to give it to, so they ended up getting it. But I don't know what they think that he died. He didn't die. His son, they killed his son. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In our story in Luke, Jesus answers the question himself. In Matthew's gospel, the crowd is so engaged in the story, Matthew records it, that the crowd gives him the answer. You know what he's going to do. Are you kidding me? He beat up three of my servants and he killed my son. I'm going to kill him. That's what I'm going to do. And the crowd says it. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, he will come and he will destroy those tenants. And he will give the vineyard to somebody else, to others. And when they heard this, they said, see, we're supposed to be shocked. They love storytelling in the, in the East. And we're supposed to be appalled and we're supposed to be shocked. And no, 
Surely not. But he looked, Jesus looked directly at them and he said to them, what then is this that is written? And here's one of those prophecies that if you were reading in Psalm 118 verse 22 and you read it out of your psalm, your psalm book and you wouldn't have realized that it was talking about Messiah necessarily, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the Lord Jesus. The stone that they cast aside that they didn't want now is the actual cornerstone. They missed it. They missed the stone that the entire building was going to be built around. The stone that was going to hold the whole building together and anchor the building. They threw it aside, but the cornerstone that they threw aside is the real cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. That's powerful language. So class, let's make sure we didn't miss the point of the story. Who's the owner of the vineyard? Say, God. Who are the workers in the vineyard? The, those who are working the vineyard, who are entrusted with it. Who might that be? Say, Israel. Yeah. And who are the servants, the three servants that they beat up? Say, Old Testament prophets. And they came repeatedly with the message of the master and they beat him and killed the prophets. They rejected it all. Oh, surely you can get the next one. And who was the son that the master sent? Class, say, Jesus. A little bit more difficult. Where are we in the story? Did you get it? Say, others. Others. Did you see that? that the vineyard then would be given to others. You see, this is a prophetic statement about the reality of the fact that the window of time for Israel to believe was over. And they had rejected Messiah. And the window was closed. And now their hearts would be hardened. And their cities would be destroyed. And they would be scattered across the globe. And indeed, they would have no identity until 1948, according to biblical prophecy. And others would be entrusted with this message. Others is the church. It's the Gentiles. It's us. And though they rejected the cornerstone, the cornerstone then be built again, be built upon, but the cornerstone would crush. And so he comes into the city to fulfill scripture, to show them who he is, and to warn them, your time is almost up. You're down to a week. That's it. So what do you take home from this? There's a number of interesting applications. I wanted us to capture just a few. One that I didn't want you to miss that I love to harp on. This is kind of my, kind of a pet one of mine. It is number one. There's a lesson here in that, in the fulfillment of scripture as literal and precise as it was in the first coming, then it provides a firm platform for our Bible interpretation in understanding the prophetic statements about his second coming as being literal. You understand what I'm saying? One of the things that was demonstrated on Palm Sunday was the literal, precise fulfillment of prophetic statements. The Bible came true right before their eyes. It wasn't spiritualized, the colt, the foal of a donkey is the foal of a donkey. Coats thrown in the street are coats thrown in the street. A virgin's a virgin. Bethlehem's Bethlehem. 
ascension's ascension. It's, it's exactly the way the Bible said it would happen. And you need to know today that this word has visited us and we've been introduced to the cornerstone and we have a limited time of, under, of, of, of acknowledging and receiving him because the clock is ticking and there is a second coming. In Acts chapter 1, when he ascended up into heaven, the angel said as clearly as can be, this same Jesus who has gone up into heaven in front of you and, and they were standing there watching it happen. Real people in real time, in a real universe of physical laws. He went up before them and it said, he will come again in like manner. You don't have to think to yourself, wow, I wonder what that means. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, when it says that he's going to break open the skies and he's going to come, and in 1 Corinthians 15, talks about in a, blinking, in a blink of an eye with a trumpet sound, and he'll be in the sky. When he went up, he went up in the sky. He's going to come back in the sky. Take it, he's going to fill the sky. You think the American church is going to go first and the church in Malawi in the southern hemisphere on the other side of the globe is going to go second? When Christ returns in the sky, he's going to fill the sky and, and he's going to receive his church unto himself. These are prophetic statements in scripture. If everything about the first coming came true literally and precisely, why would we spiritualize or think that the second coming prophecies would not come true literally or precisely? Second Peter chapter 4 says the globe is going to burn. Oh, Pastor Van, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's all going to happen just the way that he said. Don't mock this book. It's an incredible book. You mock it and you miss the window, you'll be crushed into powder by the cornerstone. Secondly, it's a picture. And this is where you need to wake up a little bit because you need to understand that just like in entering Jerusalem in all humility on a colt, Jesus never forces his way into your life. He's there. There he is. Just the way the Bible said he would be. But he doesn't force his way in. He is not a conquering general, general yet. He is a gentle savior inviting you to him. Come to the cross this Easter season. Acknowledge your sinfulness. Know that he went to be the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world and his blood can take away all sin and restore right relationship between you and God. Thirdly, it's a warning. In the same way that he wept over Jerusalem, in the same way that he told these stories about a closing window of time, people who reject Christ are living in a window of time that is closing. Number three, he's coming again. You don't have forever. Uh, let me ask you a question. I'm almost done. Have you been paying attention to the news and the world around us at all? I'm not crazy. I'm not the smartest guy that ever lived. I assure you of that. But I can read and I can see. And I tell you, I've never seen anything like it. 
the last 10 years and the last 10 months and the acceleration of evil and the bizarre behavior that is acceptable and right being wrong being called right and right being called wrong. We have, we have last day's events going on all around us. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that in the last days it will get worse and worse. And it's going to be beyond worse. And I'm telling you, you, every day you you, you hesitate to read the headlines because you, I mean, it's just crazy. And you say, oh, Pastor Van, people have always been wicked. I know that. And Pastor Van, we haven't had instant media to have it all poured down to us all at one time. I know that too, but I'm telling you, the things that I have heard and seen even in the last three days that is common now was not common before. You think God is not ready to give the elbow to Jesus and say, now's the time to come. Are you ready for the return of Christ? You see, Christ came to Israel and they missed it and they received judgment because they missed it. The same thing will happen again. Do you recognize that this Jesus has come to be the savior of the world and he died and he was buried and then he rose again and Paul said in Romans 1, 4, that he was raised to life through the power of the Holy Spirit to document and to authenticate that he indeed was the Son of God. So we'll celebrate that next week. But what a shame. What a shame for these people to have Jesus in the flesh healing and ministering right in front of them and they missed it. What a shame to have the Word of God coming true right in front of our eyes and to miss it. Receive it today, my friend, I pray. Let's stand and bow our heads, please. And so, Father, we humble our hearts in your presence. If there are hard hearts here today, would you soften them? If there are confused minds here, would you bring clarity? Would you help us to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up? The king that came and wept because he loves people. And he recognizes the sinfulness of the world and he recognizes his own rejection. And so help us not to reject, but to receive, to enter into newness of life in Christ, to admit our sinfulness, to believe in this Jesus, to build our lives with resurrection power. Accomplish your purposes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So God bless you as you go. We do need to stack the chairs. Um, And then don't forget there is a newcomer's fellowship in modular E immediately following this service.